Welcome back to the Vigilante Book Club, and it has been a minute. A lot has changed. We lost great Canadian Alex Trebek, SpaceX sent astronauts to the International Space Station, and a certain country had a certain election which a certain president can't seem to accept and is now squatting in the White House. What hasn't changed is our little show. If this is your first time listening, we recommend you go back to episode one to get caught up on our story. The Vigilante contains violence of all kinds, and from time to time we dabble in a few cuss words. Motherfucker. whole image confuses me. I, I don't think I'm using my penis right. I don't think I could throw it. Oh, you should definitely try throwing it. Iron Man? Iron. Iron Man. Iron. Iron Man. Iron. Iron. You say, you're saying like I run. But you're not saying Iron Man. Iron Man. This is the kind of high quality <laughs> you can always expect at the Vigilante Book Club. <laughs> Oh my god, we're back again. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh my god, we're back again. Yes. I have missed your voices so much. We haven't seen each other or talked to each other directly, so this is quite a reunion for us and for the show, and I've missed my bros. Yeah. yeah. My bros and my fawns. And my dollies. Yeah, like somebody in uh, somebody on in our emails there broke us down into three distinct people. Now we're dolly, fawns, and bro. <laughs> How am I still the fucking bro? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because I claimed dolly, so... If the Affliction t-shirt fits... Yep. Oh man. Yeah. Um yeah, we're we're back and it feels like, you know, we took a, a, a quite a number of weeks off, but it was incredible to be on our break and to get all of these lovely emails yeah. and messages from we have like the coolest, nicest, intelligent listeners that we just were blown away by. The, the, the messages meant so much to us. Um, Truly. And one in particular it was like the event of my last month and uh i'd love to share with you uh what we went through and i think i'll i'll read this uh yeah i think it's a good idea yeah i think it's easier to read it so dear us uh, we began listening to your podcast at the beginning as we are regular theater goers and we're lucky enough to hear about this project since its conception when we listened to your last episode, we were deeply saddened to hear that your cutoff date for becoming a dad was age 45. But this also set an idea in motion for us that has been percolating for years. Last fall, I attended a talk at the Olive Fertility Center located near Broadway City Hall in Canby and have become very interested in searching for a sperm donor. <laughs> My husband... Sadly, cannot have children, and as I am 34, my biological clock is ticking, and I would love to start having kids. Regrettably, donor sperm websites have not appealed to me despite the elaborate profiles. I don't trust random men. However, listening to your podcast, I feel like my husband and I know you intimately, and we trust you implicitly. What we are about to ask is very vulnerable for us. We have a deep respect for your art and what you do and would love to inquire about how you feel about becoming a sperm donor for us. So uh, this email came to us and we uh, went on a mad texting flurry. Yeah, that was an entertaining couple of hours of texting back and forth. <laughs> 
I was so invested in your decision. I, I really wanted to know if you said no too impulsively, I, I had this instinct to sort of, I wanted you to think about it more. But it wasn't that I wanted you to necessarily say yes either. I just thought it was such a big decision that we all had to make together for some reason. I have to admit, I thought for a half second, well, I'm not using it. <laughs> uh, okay, I should also mention, I told my mom, and she did not find it as funny as I did. I was like, hey, mom, got a really interesting compliment today. She was like, what? And I was like, someone wants my sperm. She was like, no, 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 no. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I wish I'd been there for that. Uh, but then we, we were quickly, a uh, few hours later, uh, written uh, again uh, to be informed that this was an incredibly funny prank at our expense. Also raised a lot of like really interesting questions, really. And, and one that I'd like to admit to that I'm not really proud of is I was like, why don't they want mine? <laughs> is it my voice is it my voice again our, one of our suggestions was to say that we were going to write back with a, a mixtape <laughs> it's just going to be all three of ours in a cup and be like yeah there you go the vigilante book club's greatest hits <laughs> here's a real clusterfuck of dna enjoy yeah. we are really opening a door now to some crazy emails and pranks yeah. Uh, but which you can do at uh, vigilantebookclub at gmail.com or just find us on Twitter at Club Vigilante. Or just write uh, Farron Timoteo at <laughs> <laughs> hoaxmail.com. Yeah. We should do a little catch up because um, a, lot's, a lot's happened. Uh, what, tell me all your life story. What's happened since we last talked? Well, when last we met, I was a snow shoveler. And upon listening to our last episode, I discovered that I don't recall recording most of that last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so have you retired? Are you, are, are you a retired snow shoveler? Yeah, so that, that was an afternoon of uh, real difficulty. At 8.30, I looked at my phone, and I'd received a text from the snow shoveling company saying like, hey, it's supposed to snow again tonight. Can you come back out at 2 a.m.? And I wrote back and uh, resigned my position <laughs> immediately. Fortunately, a few days later, I, I heard back about some interviews that I had done and um, started training the following week to be a letter carrier with Canada Post. You're a mailman. I'm a yeah. mailman. I'm a posty bro. What a handsome mailman. You're the like quintessential ideal mailman. Yeah, like I feel like you would, you'd be the mailman that would look through the window on Pee Wee's show. Oh, I was like, where is this going? <laughs> I feel like you're, I feel like you're yeah. the kind of mailman that likes to look through windows. The next episode, Drew's like, I've been fired as a mailman. <laughs> and uh, I will be recording this from jail. <laughs> but I've got a lot of free time now. Yeah, yeah. And actually, the sound is really good. <laughs> Shut the fuck up! Okay. <laughs> Is that your roommate? <laughs> sure, we'll call her that. So I think Farron and I have pretty obvious questions, and I think anyone listening as well uh, for you, um, we need to know about the dog issues. Is it true? Oh, that's a great question. Um, in training, we had a whole like module half day set aside for animal uh, awareness. Yeah, the dog thing is is real just because dogs are territorial you know a dog may never attack somebody but if someone is like entering the yard or coming to them they will 
often try to protect their home. And it's not because they're like rabid dogs or they hate mailmen. It's just like full-on stranger danger. I've seen enough cartoons. I'm pretty sure you're their natural enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But, you know, often a dog will be nearby and will like sniff me and be fine and be happy. And the constant joke that I've heard every day is like, oh, I guess it's not true, which is hilarious every time. Yeah, it sounds like it's not getting an old, old at all. And you really like that <laughs> I brought this up. <laughs> so did dogs hate you, Drew? True. Yeah. Suddenly dogs hate me. I've yeah. always gotten along well with them. Off, off clock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You look out your window at night and there's like a, a dog in a car looking at you through binoculars. Sharpening a knife. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get that motherfucker. I got to ask though, because if film, television, and uh, pornography has taught me anything, <laughs> there is a lot of saucy stay-at-home people of both genders just waiting for the mailman to come by so they can seduce them. Are you experiencing that at all? Is that the mailman or the pizza guy? I think it's both, but I always sort of thought the mailman was sort of at the top of that hierarchy. Yeah, I think stereotypically it is the the pizza guy, but the mailman is also, like, or the plumber, anybody coming to your home to deliver something. Clear um, them pipes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> deliver that mail. Hey, I just cleaned your shit out of the back <laughs> of the toilet. Do you want some of this dick? <laughs> I think that it, it's not as common uh, currently just because of the pandemic. Oh, but you think that normally you'd be getting crazy tail out of yeah, this situation? Yeah, I think I'd be having to really right. beat them off with a stick. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's and it's I it it's I think that was in the module. It's like wasps, dogs, pussy. <laughs> the Vigilante Book Club is proud to be sponsored by Pulling Out. Thanks, Dad. And uh, and and this is uh, this was something I saw through the socials. You uh, now have a ten-year-old. Yeah, I got a ten-year-old, y'all, and okay. they are remarkable. Tell me what it feels like to be uh, an adult with a ten-year-old child. Because I always think about how, like, my mom. You know, it's I, when we just had our birthdays recently. It must feel it must be weird to be like I have a thirty-six-year-old child. Totally, yeah. you know, because that's also the marker of your life and a very and, good description of you, Kayvon, a thirty-six-year-old yeah, 36 child. child. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. You're onto something there, though, because uh, because we don't stop aging, right? As as parents and as children, we don't see our think of our parents as aging uh, until we're a little bit older they're just older yeah but yeah i'm 10 years older too i'm a 10 year old parent so it it definitely feels different it's really exciting because i have a a truly wonderful miraculous angel child but we're also ramping up to adolescence speaking for myself i think about it a lot i'm like okay we're ramping up to this complex period of time so i think leo officially as a 10 year old is a tween i think um uh, as in between, I suppose, childhood and adolescence. Is that what tween means? Oh, that's, that's, I don't know. I, I, we'd have to look that up, actually. That's the way I take it, uh, is a, a sort of a between abbreviation. I know what a twink is. I don't know what a tween is. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're related. I mean, I guess they could and, be. No, they're not related. Don't relate those two things. Yeah, they, the, yeah let's not yeah. go there. <laughs> <laughs> Very different party. Okay. Was uh, puberty difficult for you? No, I, you know what, I, 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 it was confusing. I feel like I grew up during a time where 
sex education and, and preparation for adolescence was always sort of veiled in, I don't know, poetic language because it was just too scary to just use the terms, use the bio, like speak up clearly about the biology of it. And, and uh, I, I think we've progressed. I think there's a lot more awareness around adolescence now. But at the time, uh, at least I hope so, at the time, uh, I, I think I was confused and afraid because there was so much sort of mysticism around what what was about to happen to us my mom went through menopause at the same time as i went through puberty jesus wow. your poor father your poor poor father <laughs> <laughs> he worked a lot he was he away be a lot sainted that man should be a saint <laughs> looks like overtime again i i look back on it and realize that i didn't i didn't cope with it very well in the in the early stages I, I remember at the time i thought i was the coolest kid in the world but at 13 i smoked my first cigarette alcohol marijuana and and the biggest one was um uh i had sex the first time when i was 13 and it was uh in hindsight traumatic and i remember you know it's so funny do you know why i remember i still i have it stuck in my head and this is not an argument for media ruins our youth but um it was because of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Mm-hmm. There was an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where they, it was some conversation about confusion about talking about when was your first time. Right. And he offhandedly was like, no, I was like 13. And then was like, realized they're not talking about the same thing and moved on. But I grabbed that. I was like, oh, like 13 is the time to start. Sure. It normalized it. And what's crazy, too, as I think about it, I hadn't even masturbated yet. Wow. Oh, fascinating. Very odd. Very, very misplaced um, uh, feelings of like, okay, so now you're a teenager. This is, these are the things that you do as a teenager. And I like aggressively attacked and grabbed onto them and then got like whiplash out of it. I think sex was a really kind of, uh, I'm not sure how different it was from the 80s, but it was becoming a really, uh, it was a very casual, it had a casual existence in conversation and television and film in the 90s. Uh, And so I think as soon as we're exposed to it, and I can't even imagine at what age they're exposed to it now, uh, children, we should probably be providing sex education, right? Because otherwise they're going to start, just as you did, Kayvon, trying to sort it out for themselves. It didn't sit well. It didn't. It didn't feel like a a positive experience. It felt like a whoops. <laughs> but there obviously was enough sex education and self awareness that upon the end of that experience, I had the ability to go, okay, um, I was wrong about the timing. That's interesting. In terms of sex education, and again, I'm I'm well out of the loop. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what that looks like exactly right now. Although I am trying to familiarize myself. Well, usually somebody lies down, and <laughs> yeah, another person yeah. <laughs> lies on top of them. Like I'm trying to familiarize myself with with literature aimed at adolescence, right? Because I, I'm headed in that direction as a parent. But it, I mean, there's a biological aspect to it. But in terms of what you're talking about, maybe there's an emotional aspect to it. Does that get discussed in sex sexual education? Well, what I recall from sex sex education in high school was it was uh, it was biology. This is a vagina. This is your penis. This is semen. This is how cum works. You know, like it was never. Yeah, this inability to enable young people to talk about intimacy is a big part of why we have an issue with consent today. 
Yeah. Right. Because these young men, particularly, are not being given the tools to express what they are, what they want, and to have a dialogue about, like, saying, "Yeah, I would like to be intimate with you," and it becomes this horrible dance of silent cues and interpreting yeah. what you think is consent, because we're not given the tools um, to. to to think it's okay to say those things that it's and i get it like when you're 13 years old it's really weird to say like hey i'm looking for a hand job but a lot of pain could be like be avoided by being able to say hi i uh feelings for you and i'm wondering if like physical intimacy to this level is possible the other person can say no and you're like cool glad i know that and didn't like just grab your hand and try and mash it into my groin hoping you thought it was cool you know there's the misconceived notion that you know men are the gas and female women are the brakes inside of a sexual experience the women are trying to do less and the men are wanting more and right i think i think media um and i i'm an enormous fan of film and television and pop music uh but still i have to acknowledge that i think that media has grossly normalized and made playful the male role of relentless player if you ever like listen to pop music, just uh, single out uh, terms like come on. If you listen to pop music from the 80s and 90s, you will hear guys say to their target, for lack of a better word, in these pop songs, come on, like very easily, very casually. Baby, it it's a... cold outside. That's right. <laughs> and it's normalized. And, and I think that, uh, that encourages men to behave that way. In fact, it might even tell young boys that this is how you should behave. But it also conditions women to accept it. Oh, he's so funny. That's so funny. That's so charming. Uh, and all the while, toxically reinforcing uh, a structure of abuse and assault that, in, that empowered men. Speaking of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like that was like almost his his weekly mandate was like catchphrases and quippy one-liners and, and chasing fucking women. close talking. Like, and close talking. If you look talking. at the body language of when he sees a hot girl, he like throws something across the room, gets within an inch of her face, and he's like, girl, I'm going to fuck. I'm like, you know, like, yeah. it's like, it, 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 he's a very funny, charismatic human being. So he we is. kind of, and also the world around him was built to, to, to embrace it. The performers mm -hmm. on the other end were receptive. The, the, the sound was light. But if you like look at it, there's a man in a public space who sees a woman he does not know at all and gets within an inch of her face in the first second of meeting her and starts talking about her, how her body is affecting him. Totally. That would be the most terrifying thing in the world. I remember being terrified because th I, I thought I could never be him. And I'm supposed to be him. Mm. And that's the thing is that, is that like, because that's, that was produced. That was written. That, mm -hmm. was, that was orchestrated. Yeah, and, the other person's and, and, response is scripted. Yeah. And then 13 and 14-year-old boys with pimples and no ability to communicate truly are just aggressively walking up to women and being like, I, I think because you boobs and fuck, you know. And, <laughs> and then they get mad. As they get older and no one's responding to that, and they're like, well, I was told that that's what that is, and then they become incel members. Yeah, I, I still feel that. I, I still feel like I'm, I'm 37 now, and I still feel like I'm working to understand how to communicate uh, or even understand my emotional state. 
it scares us. And I think back, and I really will own this. I think back of me in like 1999 in Saskatoon. Like, I was definitely like putting my hand up a girl's shirt without asking because that was how makeouts worked. And then, you know, she'd pull my hand down and I'd be like, oh, okay. And then like make out for another 10 minutes and then try again. Fuck me. Like I just, just this ownership and, and hindsight of, of, of the garbage that I've perpetuated as a um, inarticulate um, adolescent. I think it's common of the male experience. And I think a lot of uh, men feel incredible shame uh, having to retroactively assess and take responsibility for their behavior. I think uh, far too many don't have any shame about it. Oh, good point, too. That's true. Like, and, and that there's still, uh, there's still a media culture and there's still a masculine culture that protects them, too. I guess you have to want to step outside the box and look at it, honestly. Man, this episode's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so in short, I'm really excited to have a 10-year-old. And now for the recap to end all recaps. Meet Joe Madden, a New York engineer with a photographic memory and a heavily suppressed case of PTSD. And meet the woman he loves, Sarah. When Joe's rage issues get Sarah killed, Madden goes on a bender. This shit and vomit filled extravaganza culminates in his decision to strike back in vengeance. Filled with eggs, bacon, and racism, Joe stalks the streets of New York and kills his first victim. And now, chapter 10. The next morning, Friday, he awoke with a feeling that all was right with the world. The clock to the side of the bed told him it was 8.30. The sunlight streaming through the bedroom window told him that it was a beautiful and bright morning. He had slept <laughs> naked. Why did you say that so strangely? <laughs> A beautiful and bright morning. I like a liquid you, thank you very much. <laughs> but no, a liquid you is great. Did you have a, a liquid, like, I-N-G? You were like, <laughs> morning. I was painting a picture, you cunt. All right, here we go. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll dumb it down for you, Drew. Right. <laughs> morning. The clock to the side of the bed told him it was 8.30. The sunlight streaming through the bedroom window told him that it was a beautiful and bright morning. <laughs> much better my albertan is just so happy he had slept naked as was his usual practice and now as he swung his legs free of the covers the air felt good on his skin it wasn't until he was moving toward the bathroom that he saw it the butcher's knife on the corner of the chest of drawers the visual impact of the weapon stunned him for the moment he'd done it He'd actually gone out and done it. And he now felt the exhilaration which he had not felt the previous night. Last night, all he had felt was... It was hard to say. He really didn't know what it was he felt last night. He thought that maybe what he felt was nothing at all. After the killing, directly after it, he had felt that he was being watched... But that had passed, and in its stead had come the feeling that there really wasn't anybody interested enough to watch him at all. There was the sense of being alone in the great city, alone with them, the enemy. There were others, 
Of course, the people of the city who took neither side in the war because they didn't suspect a war of this kind was going on. Those others were all around him, but they didn't count. They were nothing more than backdrop or props to the drama. They weren't the actors. No, only himself. And the animals were the ones with action roles. And this morning, there was one less animal. But last night, he had felt somehow numb after the killing. Even now, he could see himself, as with another eye, walking swiftly from the dead man, then slowing down so as not to appear suspicious, walking due west, then down first and turning up 77th, and then entering his building and waiting for the elevator finally entering the apartment and locking the door, and then pouring himself a small bourbon and carrying it into the bedroom as he peeled off his coat and jacket, and then the tape from his shirt, and then the rest of his clothing. Wait, what else did he do? <laughs> he got home. The elevator was in use. He took <laughs> the stairs. He did not wait for the elevator and got in. He stood naked before the full-length mirror the bourbon in his hand, raising the glass in a silent toast, his eyes on the reflected eyes of the mirror surface, waiting for some kind of mental reaction. I'm curious about what both of your um, instincts or perceptions are on the recent obsession with him being nude. Well, he slept nude with his wife too, right? And didn't, didn't when, he, uh, when he came home... Uh, and vomited everywhere. Didn't wasn't he nude there as well? Then he yeah, shit himself nude sure that one time. That is. is it like? Is he just? Um, <laughs> sorry, the image of shitting yourself nude is okay, like yeah. there's <laughs> nothing to catch it. It's <laughs> really taken me on a different route suddenly. Sort of like animalistic yeah. motif theme going on here. I mean, he's calling everybody else an animal, but yeah, he strips down and he celebrates by looking at his body in the mirror. And and not for the first time. What is that? It, yeah, maybe it's narcissism, like he loves his body. I, but It reminds me of but, American Psycho. It, it, great example, yeah. Which, yeah. that's narcissism though, right? That's narcissism on display, isn't it? Oh, that he was, yeah. he was, uh, he wanted to fuck himself. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe Joe Madden does too. He stood naked before the full-length mirror, the bourbon in his hand, raising the glass in a silent toast, his eyes on the reflected eyes of the mirror surface, waiting for some kind of mental reaction. There had been none. He drank the liquor and then went to bed, where sleep claimed him immediately. A dreamless, black void sleep. And now, this morning... The sight of the knife and the sight of his naked form again in that mirror, but this time there was a difference in the reflection, especially around the eyes and mouth. The lips were curled up into a half-smile, but the pale blue eyes were cold as ice, or as death. He had the coffee pot bubbling within minutes and went immediately to the bathroom. A cold shower, then the shave. That was his intention, but the shaving lather was no further than into the palm of his hand when he realized it was no good. He couldn't shave yet. He's obsessed. It's nudity and shaving and coffee and bacon over and <laughs> over. He couldn't shave yet. There were other things he had to do, things of more immediate concern, because they were loose ends of last night's outing. First, the raincoat. 
The blood was still there. At the thought, he anxiously examined his hand. There had been blood on it last night. He was certain of it. He hadn't washed last night. He also was certain of that. But this morning, he hadn't been aware of anything on his fingers. True, he had showered, but... Yes, there it was, a trace of the dried brown crust under the fingernail of his right ring finger. Carefully, with a fingernail brush, he removed it. Then another trace, minutely small between the index and middle fingers. It was odd that there wasn't more. Last night he felt as if he'd been drenched with the stuff. It was when he picked up the raincoat from the bedroom floor and examined it closely that he knew where the blood had gone. In the right-hand pocket there was a handkerchief, stains all over it. Evidently, as he'd walked home, he'd carefully cleaned his hand. Now he had to clean the cloth. Just throw it out. <laughs> what are you talking about? Why would you do laundry? Yeah, but then couldn't you, like, catch, find it and, you know... No, no, no. honestly, it it's New him? York in the 70s. Every other garbage can has a bag of bloody clothes. I guess that's true. Not the handkerchief. That was headed for a one-way trip into the incinerator shaft on his floor outside the apartment. But the coat had to be cleaned. The question was, how do you clean blood stains from fabric? Sarah would know. But she... Why? Because of her period? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, come on. No, why, would, why would Sarah know? I'm sorry. Yeah. When you have an incinerator shaft outside of your apartment building, <laughs> yeah. isn't that your one stop? Yeah. Burn it all, man. He's like, oh, I really love this coat. And I, just, <laughs> I wish my wife was here because her moon blood would often come and she knew how to get rid of it. <laughs> moon blood. <laughs> how do you clean blood stains from fabric? Sarah would know, but she... Automatically, the thought cut itself off. Only a small part of it remained, the beginning. Sarah would know. She would know because she had all kinds of housekeeper helper books, which had that kind of information in abundance. The thing was, which book? She could have found it, but her book storage system was something only she understood. He stood now in the hall, his eyes closed. He could look directly at the several shelves in the kitchen, living room, and bedroom, and the piles of books in their clothes closet. But that would take a little too much time. This way was better. It took him a couple of seconds to clear his mind. Then the kitchen bookshelves came into focus, the titles on the spines all there for him to scan, cookbooks of all descriptions, a whole earth catalogue, four novels, biographies of Renoir and Freud, and three paperbacks which were in the stacks backward. Next came the living room selection, nothing of interest there except a 1940-something copy of the Navy's Blue Jackets Manual, something Sarah had bought because she wanted to know about ship's signals in case. She said, we ever get a boat. The fact that they'd never discussed owning a boat didn't seem to matter, but Sarah was like that. She had been like, he stored the Blue Jackets manual as a remote possibility, then switched onto the bricks and boards bookshelves in the bedroom, and there he found it, the unhandy handyman's book. He opened his eyes and went directly to the book. To be clear to anyone who's super fucked confused, 
He's been using his photographic memory going through all the books in the apartment. In his mind? In his mind. Yeah, he hasn't moved. He's doing all of this in his brain. Wow. He opened his eyes and went directly to the book. Page 104 told him what he needed to know. Cold water. <laughs> That's obvious. He had a 50-50 shot, bro. <laughs> So apparently you have a photographic memory that can memorize exactly what the room looks like, but you didn't have the ability to hang on to cold water equals blood removal. <laughs> it sounded simple. Too simple. But the text was reassuring. Use only cold water and plenty of it. Hot water sets blood stains. But page 104 was absolutely right. Twenty minutes later, the coat was wet, but the blood was gone. Of course, there were tests the police could make, which would probably find traces of the stuff within the fabric. But to make those tests, they'd have to have some reason. And why would anyone have a reason to test Joe Madden's coat? Only if he were caught at the scene, or seen by somebody else who reported him to the police. He laughed. <laughs> If the cops were around, or if anybody was around, there wouldn't have been any action. Both Joe Madden and his victim would have seen to that. He drank a full cup of hot coffee, then poured a second cup and brought it back into the bedroom. It was time to fix the second problem. He jerked off. <laughs> <laughs> but first he had to know how, so we went back to the books. It was time to fix the second problem, the knife and sheath setup. The night before, the rig hadn't worked at all the way it was supposed to. Madden thought he knew how to correct things, but he wanted to be sure. He was. Period. That is the worst sentence I've ever read in my life. He was. As he stood at the ruddy before the mirror, he was certain of it even before he went for the knife handle. The cardboard sheath which held the knife was now taped to the top of his forearm. His wrist, in the downward position, could in no way block his draw. He tried it. Perfect. He untaped the sheath. There was no need to try it again, not until the next time, when he had need of the weapon. The raincoat hanging up to dry, the knife and sheath problem solved, Madden decided his major chores for the day were over. He thoroughly enjoyed his shave. Farron, I want you to get ready for your favorite part of this book. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know what to do. Should I get naked? <laughs> Breakfast was bacon and eggs, <laughs> and two more cups of coffee. Around 11, he had the urge for some V8, but there wasn't any among the kitchen cans. He was out of scotch, too, and although he knew he wouldn't be drinking today, not until afterward, he knew that getting out of the apartment would be good for him, so why not a shopping excursion? Even the thought of it made his mouth scowl. He'd not shopped for groceries since the marriage, and now, and now it might do him some good. The day still was bright and cheerful as he stepped outside. He noticed that the outer apartment building door caught and locked properly now. Delancey's 
word with the super must have been of much more weight than any of the tenants who had complained madden was certain that there had been such complaints there were simply too many old and crabby women in the place for there not to have been good for delancey he was an effective cop in his way but not in madden's way he had to orient himself as to which way to go there was a deli up on second but their liquor store was on first. Which way to go first? As he asked the question, it came to him that he'd like nothing more than to take a longer walk, up to the park, just to see if the kid was still there, or to see what the place looked like, really, in the daylight hours. The idea, of course, was stupid. No, it was more than just stupid. The criminal always returns to the scene of the crime. The proverb filled all the old detective books, and whether there was any validity in it or not, he was sure there wasn't. There was no sense at all in his tempting the fates that way. First, east, to the liquor store, then west, to the deli, and then back home, to wait until night. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I have to tell you we're very excited to be back. But I need to speak to you about a very serious issue. During our hiatus, it came to my attention that both Drew and Farron have been petitioning through this program to get rid of me. He must die so we can live. Visit SaveDrewAndFarron.com today. Well, I'm here to tell you that I'm not going to be that easy to get rid of. In fact, this means war. To join Team Kayvon, go to FuckDrewAndFarron.com because... There can only be one. It was a little after eleven when Madden boarded the subway at Lexington and 77th. As the train moved southward, he scanned the headlines of the post. There was no mention of a body being found in Carl Schur's park. The morning times and the news had carried nothing on it as well. He picked up both papers at the corner stand next to the deli, not really expecting to find anything in them, not so much because of the close timing between when the kid with the slit throat might have been found and the paper's deadlines, but because of the fact of the killing itself. Killings weren't all that much news anymore. Certainly not knifings in a secluded park. Thinking that thought earlier in the day, he had wondered whether or not Sarah and himself had made the papers. He hadn't looked at a newspaper since last Sunday, and there might have been something. But he didn't care one way or the other. He'd lunched, showered, slept a couple of hours, had a light dinner, and then dressed. Dressed to kill. Although not in the popular sense of the phrase. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification. <laughs> I thought he'd put on a suit. I thought it was a backless the... gown that he spun into a ball with. <laughs> he is a fashion vigilante. Oh, That's yes. true. I'm dressed to kill, but not as you think of it. Stab, 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 die, die, die. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> as the train rumbled down the length of Manhattan, Madden had no eyes for the others who occupied his car. There were two. A black girl. Pretty carrying an artist's leather case, and a small man in an overcoat which looked much too big for him. Once again, only describing black people by the color of their skin and literally no other individuals in such a way. Is the man she's with described? No, nope, uh, just, says, just says small man in an overcoat. So no, no definition of race. Having that much data on them both was quite enough for Madden, whose eyes closed. 
For the tenth or eleventh time that day, he was trying again. His location of the book at the apartment had renewed his confidence in his mental recall abilities, and now, in the blank grayness of his mind screen, it came clearly. The wide pink cap, the flash of the knife, and between them the surly, twisted smile and cold and deadly eyes. But the other parts of the face were blurred as they had been that night. He began focusing in on nostrils which flared backward on chin hair and thick-lobed ears, but he consciously blurred them back because he knew his imagination was working to try to complete the mind picture, drawing from any and all sources to help Madden's effort. That nose, for example, was one he recognized as coming directly from one of the photographs in Delancey's book. If he put his mind to it, yes, the full face now, a full moon of a negroid face, with a patch of light skin discoloration at the top of the left forehead, and the words to the side of the picture, Williams, Willie T., and other words describing his career as an armed robber, burglar, small-time drug pusher. But Williams' Willie T. wasn't the face Madden wanted to crystallize, and that face he wanted just wouldn't come. Neither that face nor any of the others. He had told Delancey he'd never forget that face, had assured himself it wasn't possible, but it was. He had thought that riding the subway with the sound of the train wheels all around him and the throbbing, jostling motion beneath him would help to bring it back, but it wasn't working. He should have known, did know, in fact, that it wouldn't work. His memory trick, if it was a trick, and not the fortunate aberration he thought it was, couldn't be forced. For the most part, he could recall anything he'd seen or read, but if he couldn't, there was no use trying. The mental reproduction either came easily or it came not at all. Trying brought nothing into the picture but imagination, sometimes all too clear so as to lead his memory astray for the moment, but only for the moment. There always was a quality, a quality he couldn't quite describe, which labeled the imaginary as false. I don't <laughs> follow. Yeah, I, he's, I lost it. He's trying to figure out what this person looked like and he's forgetting these things like <laughs> that's really all that fucking matters he can't remember the face because that would be too easy and the play the, the the story would be over no the pure and simple fact was that he couldn't remember them any of the four who had killed his sarah if maybe if he saw them again but what were his chances the odds were insurmountable that they'd be working the same beat this soon after having narrowly escaped getting caught for a killing. No, that might not be true either. What in the hell did he know about the workings of minds such as theirs? Nothing. He opened his eyes as the train stopped again. 33rd. He was getting deeper into battle territory now. He scowled at the thought. There was no real battle territory, or rather the whole city was battle territory. New Yorkers like to think that there were some parts of the city which were dangerous and that other parts weren't, but it was purely a matter of degree. The fact of the matter was that the danger areas were wherever it was dark. 
or wherever you were alone. Similar theology is held by eight-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't even true. The danger areas were where and when the animals decided to strike. The little man in the outsized overcoat shivered his way out of the car when the train stopped at Astor Place, leaving Madden alone. He rose and checked through the end windows and found that the two cars to the front and rear of his own also were empty. He sat back down and pushed the bottom part of his face into the valley of the trench coat lapels. He slouched down, his head leaning over and almost touching his left shoulder, allowing the rhythm of the train to rock it slightly. To any observer, he looked like a man either drunk or extremely worn out after a hard day's work. It didn't make much difference to Madden, as long as he looked like a good hit. As the car doors opened at Bleecker, his eyes were alert. Flicking back and forth through the narrow slits, he allowed himself for vision. Somewhere out on the platform behind him, he heard the click of a leather heel on the pavement, followed by another, but he couldn't see who had caused them, and he didn't want to turn fully around. Maybe, though, just maybe. But the doors suddenly were closing. No, not yet. Wait. Madden's brain screamed at the closing panels, but it did no good. They clicked shut, and the train again began its southward movement. As it did so, Madden lazily turned his head around to the rear. He saw no one on the platform, which meant that whoever had been out there moved off, or had entered another car. No sooner had he grasped that thought when the connecting door between his car and that which had followed it banged open, and shut. Through the slits of his half-closed eyelids, Madden made out a figure standing there, a large figure with a black face, one whose eyes were carefully looking him over, one who stepped forward and stopped directly before him and spoke. You all right, mister? Madden nodded. I'm fine, officer. Just a little tired. This is a, this is a cop. How dare you? Refer to them as a large figure with a black face again. Yes. Completely skipping their authority and about 65,000 other adjectives you could use to describe a person of the law. Is it possible that the author's not racist and that just Joe Madden is and that the author's created a racist character to, to play with our expectations? I don't think there's a line. I don't think there's – it doesn't feel like there's a line between him and Joe's perspectives. It's hard to trust if this is intentional or not. It is hard. Um, and right now, that's where we are. But we may change our minds again. Well, and I try and figure it out. I, and I think about it a lot. Because, like, the moment that we just passed felt like a strategy, like a narrative strategy to mimic what or, or to reflect what Drew's saying is to kind of play on mm -hmm. our biases, right? We, we did the work there. Whoa, and then he surprised that's us. That's not a word. Biases? Biases? Yeah, it's a plural of bias. Well, I hear what you're trying to do. Does that exist? It would be spelled B-I-S-E-S, -E I think. Uh, B-I-A-S-E-S. -E it sounds like something someone would test on you. Like, I'm going to need you to take a biases. <laughs> I, I'd have to double check it, but I'm pretty sure it exists. It's biases. Thank you. It is, is it? Yeah, as, as far as I could find inside of, like, you know, how to pronounce, uh, it's everywhere it said biases. It would be like saying, like, uh, houses. 
How many houses are on this? <laughs> that's a good example. Like it's the same spelling? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. there's already a, an E at the end of house. That but... is tricky because, yeah, that how E is already silent in house. No, I, I pronounce it house. <laughs> <laughs> you all right, mister? Madden nodded. I'm fine, officer. Just a little tired. The blue, uniformed man with the hand radio unit and the exposed pistol in holster didn't look so sure of that, but after a couple of seconds in which Madden felt him weighing the cut and value of his clothing and the polished condition of his shoes, the hefty man in blue grunted something and made his way down to the other end of the car. When the door banged shut, Madden discovered that his right hand was firmly gripping his raincoat just over the left wrist, the fingers of that hand almost frozen in place. He cursed to himself. He would be unlucky enough to pick a train where John Law was on faithful duty. Where the hell was that blue coat last Monday night? No, he had to show up now, when the train halted Spring Street. Madden rose to his feet and looked toward the front of the train. If the cop was still in sight, he was. But Madden wouldn't have to get off, because the policeman was doing just that. It was as the doors were closing and Madden's eyes were following the blue uniform's progress across the platform that his eyes caught something else. Another figure. A man who also had been watching the cop. A man who ducked into the shadows behind the stairwell leading up to the open. A black man with a wide mod hat. Not pink, but green. Nonetheless, Madden grinned as the train started up and he watched as the dark patch under the stairwell passed by the window. He'd found his target for the night. There weren't that many reasons why a man would hide from a cop who wasn't even coming in his direction. One was that he was a wanted fugitive, but even if that were the case, in a town the size of New York, his chances of being recognized were close to nil, especially by a train cop. Another reason had less to do with what the man had done and more to do with what he was planning. And there weren't all that many things a man could be planning to do, hidden in in the shadows of a subway platform. Madden was certain he had his man. There were only a couple of hitches. One was getting off this train and onto a northbound one fast enough before his target moved off or found another victim. That was the main hitch. The other, that the man might not try him. He'd worry about that when the time came. First things first. He got off the southbound at the next stop, Canal Street, and crossed the platform with a hurried walk. As he did so, he noticed there were two black teenagers sitting on a bench some ten yards further up the platform. They were laughing about something or other. Then suddenly the laughing stopped. They had spotted him. So it's to be here and now, he asked himself. He didn't want it to be. Last night the one he'd gotten was young. Tonight he wanted that other one, the one in the shadows. These kids! What the hell difference did age make? How old were the ones who'd started all this? A killer was a killer regardless of age, and he was at war with all of them. He turned to face the bench. His eyes caught theirs, and he saw them both carefully study his features. He wasn't playing drunk now, his face grim and calm. All right, folks, if you want it.
come and get it. He knew deep in his gut that they weren't going to get off that bench. How he knew he couldn't say, but he knew. Because they're children, you... Oh my god, this is really going to happen? It was like the night before, when the man in the leather coat had backed off. A certain manner, that's all it took. A manner in which it was obvious that you were just waiting for them to make a wrong move. I ain't looking for trouble. He remembered the man in the leather coat saying that. Also the others, they said it too. The ones in the subway. And the kid in the park. Let's not me and you have any trouble. No, none of them wanted trouble. They wanted things the easy way. They wanted their victims frail or drunk or in some way helpless. And he knew now, as those two black faces scanned his own, that they knew he was trouble. Yeah, man, I bet that these two teenage kids looked at an angry fucking white man and were scared shitless. And I bet that that's why they fucking stopped talking. There are two teenagers sitting in a public space laughing so enjoying each other's company Mm -hmm. when a man comes off a train in a trench coat yeah and he fucking stares you down that's that is the story that's actually happening here right now uh yeah yeah of course they got quiet and they don't want trouble you're a terrorist (laughs) he was trouble they didn't get up One of them broke his gaze toward Madden. Madden heard the boy laugh, an uneasy laugh, as he turned and said something to his companion. The other one bobbed his head up and down and laughed back. In two seconds, the way they were swapping jokes again, it was as if Madden wasn't there. Almost. Every so often he felt their eyes on him, just for an instant on him, wary eyes, as if they now were expecting him to attack. His upper lip curled into a half-smile. The instincts of the jungle animal were not all that bad. Meanwhile, where in the hell was that goddamn train? (laughs) He had no watch to check, but it seemed an eternity was passing. The one he wanted, the one who was waiting unawares for him, might decide to leave for better pickings. If he did, Madden knew he would curse himself for defying these two now. But all life was a gamble anyway, wasn't it? And if that was the case, it was even more so the case with death. He heard the rumble on the tracks and looked down into the blackness of the tunnel. No light. Nothing. Damn it. The train, sound, and the train was coming from the north. Another southbound train, and... Wait, there was another rumbling on the tracks. And then he saw the light coming from the southern tunnel, saw it coming closer until the entire engine was in clear view. The two trains stopped almost at the same instant, maddened quickly, boarding the one he wanted, then turning to see just what the two teenagers would do now that he was leaving them. With two trains pulled up, there was the possibility they might... Sure enough, both of them were on their feet now, moving toward the southbound train. He smiled to himself. He was learning how the opposition thought. Not a very complex thinking process, to be sure. Not if he could begin to master it in the short time he'd been at it. 
and then suddenly he decided he had congratulated himself too soon. The two he watched had stopped. They weren't getting on the train after all. It was when the doors closed on both trains and they started moving that he saw the reason. There was a cop on that other train. Madden strained his eyes as the two passing cars picked up speed. He couldn't be sure, but it sure looked like it. The same cop. The one who had gotten off his earlier train. If that was the case, and Madden's smile resulted from the almost firm thought that it was, the smile broadened. His man still would be where he left him, or he would have been moments ago, because that cop had been right there on that platform with him, waiting for the next southbound train. Madden's quarry would have had to remain in his shadowy hiding place, and now that John Law had put in an appearance and gone, there was no reason for him to stay right there. The animals, above all others, knew how slim in numbers the cops were. The likelihood of another one coming along soon was close to zero. Madden quickly sat down and assumed his drunk, exhausted posture. As the train began to slow for the Spring Street stop, he could feel his heart begin to pound. The battle was about to be joined again, and his blood was racing through his system, whether in fear or anticipation he didn't know. It had been the same years ago in battles in Asia, halfway around the world. He remembered. And now he also remembered the method he used to calm himself. He blanked out his mind so that no thought could penetrate it except the one he wanted to admit. His blood now ran cold within him. His breathing was slow and methodical. And as he rose to cross to the open doors, the pale blue of his eyes were like two frozen arctic seascapes. But no one could see them. For once more his head was bowed forward, his face half into the front of his raincoat as he half walked, half staggered from the train and out onto the platform. On the inside he was a calm hair trigger, his muscles and nerves ready to spring to action upon the slightest nudge. On the outside, however, he stood leaning forward, swaying just a little as the doors closed behind him. He appeared to be trying to figure just which way he should go, now that he was off the train, which had begun to move north. His right hand moved up to scratch the top of his head, which now was cocked at a peculiar angle, as if he were staring at the station sign, as if he were wondering whether he had gotten off at the right stop. Shrugging, he put one foot out after another and moved in an unsure shuffle toward the stairway. He looked as if it took every ounce of effort he had to make it to the bottom, and then he stopped, his head again at an odd angle leaning half onto his left shoulder and peering upward at the long stairs. He was a man who was wondering if it were at all possible to make that impossible climb. His quarry was very much where he had been, Madden knew. He had seen the dark patch of green when he'd gotten off the train, seen it move back into the blackness, and now as he stood where he did, his right hand seeming to support his left, he could hear the other man's quickened breathing. But there was no other movement from the shadows, no other sound, just the breathing. What the hell was he waiting for? Didn't Madden look easy enough, for Christ's sake? If so, he'd made himself look even easier. He took a step upward, swayed awkwardly, then forward again as his other foot moved up to the step beyond. Ha! 
he said with a thick tongue. Made it. It worked beautifully. He heard the movement from the below right, then the man's voice. Hey, man, turn around. Real slow. He knew the man couldn't reach him physically from the distance he maintained, so he was in no hurry to turn. He swayed a bit to his left, then swung his left foot upward onto the next step, as if to maintain his balance. He still couldn't see the other man clearly when he muttered out his answer. Hey, how's that? Just turn around. I want your wallet. Real careful-like. That way ain't nobody gonna get hurt. No trouble. Don't want no trouble at all. Madden had to fight to keep his face under control as he turned the full way around. But as he looked down at the black man with the green hat, the smile he had forced to suppress faded away all by itself. He was looking square into something he hadn't figured on, into something he knew he should have taken into his calculations. He was looking square into the barrel of a mean-looking handgun. End of chapter. Well, duh. (laughs) They have guns? (laughs) Wait a minute, that's not fair. (laughs) Oh, Joe... It's so much worse than I ever thought it would be. Well, let's all go take a nice, long, cold shower to wash the blood out. The uh, last thing we need to mention, which is, a, is Farron's growing a fucking mustache. That's yep. right. Movember. How's it growing? Uh, I'm really <laughs> pleased with it so far. Um, I think it's growing beautifully. It's quite thick. Uh, I really wish I could find a, a nice way to trim it down. I'd like to do more of like a Clark gable type thing with it. But as it stands right now, it's quite bushy and big. Your mustache gives me joy. You are our official vigilante mustache, and we are trying to fundraise uh, for this cause. So if you out there um, support uh, men's health, men's health awareness, they've incorporated now mental health as well, which is incredibly important and uh, grossly underrepresented issue for men's health is is our mental health. Yeah. Uh, You can find information on how to donate on our Twitter or Instagram at Club Vigilante. The link is in the bio. I adore this time. We're back. And thank you for your patience. And uh, Vigilante for life, yo. Yo, 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 yo. Wow, wow, (laughs) with Dolly Fawns, bro. Out. Well, that's another episode of the Vigilante Book Club. Thanks for joining us. If you have any sperm or sperm-related questions, feel free to reach out at vigilantebookclub at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support Farron's mustache for Movember, you can find information at Twitter and Instagram, at Club Vigilante. And if you like our little show, please spread the word. And if you don't like the show, why are you still listening, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs>